Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about evangelism, politics, and Tim Keller. But before we do that, Whoa, before we're looking for interns again. And we have one of our current interns, Holly Goldsmith, in the studio with us today. Yes, Holly. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. Glad to be here. All up in the studio. I'm here. Holly, how long have you been an intern here at Cormdale? I started my internship in August of 2021, and so almost a year, nine months-ish. Holly, if you were, you, A, you have been an amazing blessing to our team, so I want you to know that. No, we're sad you. to sad to lose you, even though we're glad for what you get to do next. Moving to another country, yeah. moving to England, across the pond, across the pond. <laughs> What's what do you feel if you were talking to someone about an internship? What would you say to them? Like, why would it? Why should this be something they should consider doing? I think that internships are really sweet because you get to have um, as much of an experience as you want with different areas. You can shadow and be involved and so it's a really immersive experience I would say so that's what I've enjoyed about the Cornell internship what you've done really well is just said can I show up to that thing can I come to that meeting like that's you're like hey can I come sit in on a podcast (laughs) the answer is always yes yes we will make you talk there's a microphone (laughs) in front of my face you're a good learner (laughs) good learners are like always asking like well what else could I like learn about you know and you're really good at that Holly you're just really you insert yourself into situations and say, hey, can I show up and learn about that? And it's been really fun. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a great year. <laughs> Thanks for being such a blessing to our team. So if you are interested in becoming an intern at Coram Deo and you want to learn more about it, you can email Justin Curtis, justin at cdomaha.com and let him know that you're interested and he will respond to you and give you your next steps. Although you got big shoes to fill. Yeah. Holly Man. and Alex and Presley have <laughs> been a great legit. class of yeah. interns. The yep. 2021 intern class was a great, a great class. I was an intern once. You were <laughs> years ago. Man. I was an intern once. You now. You were. Look at you both. <laughs> Look at us. Two decades ago. Seriously. Sometimes you just, it just keep doing that thing for decades. There you are. Listeners, buckle up. We have a, a long podcast in front of us. I want to tackle. So it's we are. It's going to be fun. Yeah, there's a series of articles that were written uh, last month that we're going to talk about because I think they are squarely in the center of an issue that affects our church and churches like ours. It relates to, I mean, probably the the patron saint of our brand of Christianity is Tim Keller. What? Tim Keller? I mean, you know, like the, he's like, honestly, when it comes to church planting, when it comes to a gospel-centered missional vision of how the church should look and someone who's actually done it and done it well and done it successfully, Tim Keller has been that person. Planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 1989, wrote an amazing manual on church planting that we've all learned from. It was required reading for me in seminary. His book, Center Church, has shaped our whole philosophy ministry at Quorum Deo. So he has a massive influence on Quorum Deo and other churches like us. I recently heard about a whole denomination reading Center Church, and it was like they're not in the Presbyterian tribe at all. Yeah. So Keller has been influential. There's a recent article, a series of articles that came out sort of asking some questions about (laughs) Tim Keller and whether how he's taught us to think about politics is helpful or unhelpful. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But first, I want to set those articles up with a little story. It's going to be kind of a long story, though. You You know a guy. (laughs) 
You know a guy? I want to tell you the story of, of this author. When I, my first gig in ministry was as a campus ministry staff member at the University of Texas. And um, my wife and I showed up in Austin and I was trained by this guy who'd been on staff for a few years who I also knew because he went to the same college as I did as an undergrad. So he was a friend of mine from college. So you were the only two Oklahoma guys at Texas. <laughs> we were. <laughs> we knew that Texas needed Jesus. And uh, so we went there to share the gospel. Wow. So I, I wanted to work in the Greek system just because Texas is a huge campus. It's like 50,000 students. It's very overwhelming to figure out where can I start. And I just realized, you know, an easy in is just try to focus on a few fraternities and do some work there. Mike Burton, the guy who trained me, had been a Fiji at OU, and so he was already working in the Fiji house and the Delta house at UT and a few other fraternities. And so I just said, Mike, what's the next fraternity that we should try to do something in? And so he and I uh, prayed about that question, and then we got, we got a data list from the Office of Greek Affairs that had like all the fraternities and sororities in terms of the size, like the biggest to smallest, just ranked on a list. And the next largest fraternity that we weren't yet doing any Bible studies in was the SAE house, Sigma Alpha Epsilon. And so Mike and I were like, all right, well, you should, Bob, you should go there. You should go there. You should work on that one. So I spent about a year just trying to sort of like make some inroads to the SAE house, get to know some guys. By the way, if you asked all the sorority girls at UT, what is the scummiest fraternity full of guys that you probably don't want to hang out with? It was SAE. Now, I, that's not, there actually were really good people in that fraternity, but it just had that reputation of being the place. They're just like, yeah, we're not sure about those guys. There's things that happened at that house that you don't want to be. In fact, to this day, that fraternity has continued to have some challenges, particularly at the University of Texas. And so we just felt like, well, not only is it sizable, it also clearly needs Jesus. It needs some gospel light. So... I worked for a Sounds year. like a challenge that you would accept. <laughs> it was really fun. Hey, and that was one of the fun things about it was just like trying to figure out how do I get into a place where they're not asking me to come. No, no one wants me to start a Bible study here. And I have zero connections. So I literally, I mean, this is like old school entrepreneurial evangelism. I literally just like showed up at the fraternity house, started acting like Without I, beer. Started acting like I belonged there, got to know some people, got to know this one pledge trainer. Anyways, this hilarious thing happened. I mean, this is all providential. But long story short, a guy started going to my church who was probably 50 years old, had just become a Christian in the past year, and was an alumnus of this fraternity and really wanted to see this fraternity reach with the gospel. And so he just like started calling people up and be like, hey, this guy's going to come talk at the fraternity. You're going to let him in and do whatever he says. It was just amazing. So all these fraternity guys are like, fine. So they let me come. Um, Long story short, by the grace of God, through prayer and just, you know, faithfulness over time, um, we finally began to get some inroads into this fraternity and just have some connections and some relationships, and they thought we weren't the worst people ever. The next year, Will Walker came to join our staff team, and I was assigned to train Will. And so I just brought Will along to the SAE house, and we started, you know, doing stuff, and I handed him a stack, I literally handed him a stack of index cards, and I was like, here's all the freshmen, you're calling all these guys, and just go out to coffee with them and share the gospel. So... We did all this. At the end of that second year that Will and I had been together, the Lord had raised up two guys who were both freshmen in the fraternity who came from Christian backgrounds and seemed to have some interest in having an impact in their fraternity. Now, it's hard to be a freshman in a fraternity because you're the youngest guy and because you have no power, no authority. So even Christians that are in a fraternity kind of tend to like, if they're a freshman, 
they're not being super vocal about their faith. They're just, yeah, they're just like, just trying to survive, just trying to survive. But these two guys were really good young men and um, Will and I befriended them. Well, long story short, I left that summer to move here to Omaha to be a college pastor. Will continued in, in that fall. Those two guys got elected to positions of leadership in the fraternity. So suddenly like these two guys we've been investing in are leaders in the fraternity in December of that year. They're having a fraternity party. The party involves like confetti paper all over the house. So like, just think about it. Just confetti paper everywhere. Someone, someone was, (laughs) someone was smoking and dropped a cigarette and lit the entire fraternity house on fire. So the whole house burns to the ground. Millions of dollars in damages and all, you know, all the alumni are irate because they helped to fund this thing. And, you know, they like their fraternity house and they're all mad at the students that are there. Anyways, God used that fire to light a spark in that. Like all those guys suddenly were like, Oh crud, we made a big boo boo. And (laughs) whoops. So Walker went from leading a small Bible study in that house to about a year later, 30 or 40 of these SAE guys are coming to Bible study, becoming Christians walking with Jesus, starting to be disciples, leading other guys. Like the, the spiritual culture of that house literally totally changed hmm. over the course of a couple of years. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm like 10 minutes deep into this story <laughs> to get Keep to, going. to get I to like it. one of the guys who was in that fraternity, who came to Christ in that Bible study was a guy named James Wood. James then, uh, when he graduated, helped plant Providence Church, a church that we uh, helped to plant in Austin and was a part of that core team, uh, he and his wife. And then he is a super smart intellectual. I mean, you always knew when you met James, this guy has a, an incredible yeah. mind. He's got some um, And so he has gone on to do some graduate work and PhD work, and he's a really wonderful thinker and leader. And <laughs> he's the guy who wrote two of these articles that we're going to talk about today. Man. And maybe maybe got himself in a little bit of hot He's water in the in the Christian online world. He picked on Tim By Keller. picking a fight with Tim Keller. Now, to his point, to, to, to James's credit, if you're trying to get people to read your article, I don't know that you could do a better job <laughs> than what he did because the article he wrote for First Things, and by the way, James, congratulations if you're listening. He's a new associate editor of first, first Things. And the article he wrote is called How I Evolved on Tim Keller. Here's the case James Wood is making. Hey, you know what? When I was a young Christian, I loved Tim Keller. I read Tim Keller. He mentions that he was part of a church that was very shaped by Tim Keller's theology, that he, he met his wife while discussing the reason for God. I mean, he says this, this person was very influential. But in this article, he's basically saying, I got to a place recently where I started to ask the question of whether Tim Keller's way of thinking about politics was Correct. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you some quotes from James Wood's first article. Then I'm going to read you some quotes from David French, who wrote an email disagreed at midnight strongly. An article. <laughs> Dusty has thoughts on this. Disagreed strongly with James Wood. Then I'm going to read you James Wood's follow-up article, which I think actually gets to the heart of the question here that is important for us to ask as a church and for Christians who sort of run in our circles to ask. I think there's a really good question about political theology here that we're going to get to. That's why we called this podcast Evangelism, Politics, and Tim Keller, because it was James Wood's article about Tim Keller that got this whole conversation started. It's been fun to read. I hey, mean... I'm telling you, sometimes those old frat guys from years ago <laughs> become really intelligent public intellectuals who shape the conversation, and that's what 
uh, as happened here. And um, so let me read you a few quotes from James Wood's first article, How I Evolved on Tim Keller. All right, so after a few paragraphs of getting into his article and mentioning that he has a dog named Keller and that he is very shaped by Tim Keller, James Wood says this, Keller's winsome approach led him to great success as an evangelist, but he also, maybe subconsciously, thinks about politics through the lens of evangelism in the sense of making sure that political judgments do not prevent people in today's world from coming to Christ. His approach to evangelism informs his political writings and his views on how Christians should engage politics. I want you to hook that in your mind. That's the important thing that James Wood is going to want to talk about, is that Keller tends to think about politics through the lens of evangelism. He goes on to write, For years, Keller's approach informed my views of both evangelism and politics. When I became a Christian in college, both my campus ministry and my church were heavily influenced by Keller's winsome, missional, gospel-centered views. I liked Keller's approach to engage in the culture, his message that though the gospel is unavoidably offensive, we must work hard to make sure people are offended by the gospel itself rather than our personal culture and political derivations. We must, Keller convinced me, constantly explain how Christianity is not tied to any particular culture or political party, instead showing how the gospel critiques all sides. He has famously emphasized that Christianity is neither left nor right, instead promoting a third-way approach that attempts to avoid tribal partisanship and the toxic culture wars in hopes that more people will give the gospel a fair hearing. This is not news to anyone who has been around our ministry or Keller's ministry or any church influenced right. by Keller. This idea of a third way is how I preach. And it is true that, that we have tried to sort of deconstruct the way people tend to think, oh, Christianity looks like this or looks like that, and say, no, it's actually a third way that's different from a conservative or liberal approach to life. Um, so what Wood is framing out here is just very foundational to sort of how Tim Keller does gospel proclamation and gospel ministry. Um, Wood goes on to say, after the 2016 election, I began to observe that our politics and culture had changed. I began to feel differently about our surrounding secular culture and noticed that its attitude toward Christianity was not what it had once been. I was no longer so confident that the evangelistic framework I had gleaned from Keller would provide sufficient guidance for the current political moment. The evangelistic desire to minimize offense, to gain a hearing for the gospel, can obscure what our political moment requires. He goes on to say, If we assume that winsomeness will gain a favorable hearing when Christians consistently receive heated pushback, we will be tempted to think our convictions are the problem. If winsomeness is met with hostility, it is easy to wonder, are we in the wrong? Now, here's the concluding sentence that I think got Wood in a little more trouble than he expected. <clears throat> he concludes the article by saying, Keller was the right man for a moment. To many, like me, it appears that moment has passed. Dang! I mean, if you're going to pick a fight with the evangelical pope, you're going to get yourself in wow. some trouble. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So, people are going to click on that. So James Wood is trying to say, hey, I'm not sure Keller's approach to politics is the right way to do it. What he, <laughs> what he did, maybe, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, was he kind of made it about Tim Keller. And so then, a few days later, David French wrote a Saturday newsletter, <laughs> Dusty. I mean... David French has a weekly newsletter... <laughs> And what I want you to realize... And it's is, good. 
Well, yeah, and well, what that means is that David French has a writing deadline every Saturday. And I've been this person, and just when you have a deadline and you got to write something, sometimes you just got to put out content. And I think what David French did, he read James Wood's article, obviously disagreed strongly with James Wood's critique, but <laughs> probably overreacted with a little bit of feistiness on his own. So here's the title of David French's article. A critique of Kim, Tim Keller reveals the moral devolution of the new Christian right. Man. So two things are happening in that title. One, notice that French is positioning James Wood's article as the new Christian right. So he's sort of already saying, oh, this is that. I, am, I David French, am the centrist moderate voice. This, this James Wood and his tribe are the, the right-wingers. And he's using the language of moral devolution. And I think it's a... It's That's a, a big word. Well, he's specifically knocking on the, the title of James Wood's article, How I right. Evolved. And he's saying, no, it's not an evolution. It's a devolution. So I don't like David, because David French tends to do this, is he has a tendency sometimes to um, pigeonhole ideas or in ways that I don't think are fair to the person who said them. I think, I think French sometimes just wants to pick a fight or have an angle on something in ways that all, aren't always helpful. And um, in this article, he obviously has Keller's back. Yeah, like he's a friend of Tim kind Keller's, of and that's buddy. good. And um, that's great. There are two places that uh, that French wants to push back. The first is to say, oh, a, a part I didn't read in James's Wood article is that he uses Aaron Wren's positive world, neutral world, negative world, which we talked about a few months ago in this podcast. And James Wood says, I think that's a helpful framework. David French says... Let's begin with the premise that we've transitioned from a neutral world to a negative world. As someone who attended law school in the early 1990s and lived in deep blue America for most of this alleged neutral period, the premise seems flawed. The world didn't feel neutral to me when I was shouted down in class or when I was told by classmates to die for my pro-life views. And I, that's the same critique I made on this podcast. Yeah. I think Aaron sure. Wren's critique or Aaron Wren's framework is simplistic. And so I think David French is right there. And James Wood probably would have had a better article if he wouldn't have chosen to use those categories. Um, then he takes issue with James Wood's critique of Keller's third way. He says, Wood says this third way encourages its adherence in a pietistic impulse to keep one's hands clean and stay above the fray. But this is wrong. In the past week, I've written strongly against Roe, and in support of Justice Alito's leaked draft opinion in the pages of The Atlantic, and you should read my inbox. In the past month, I've urged Christians to reject the idea that the fight over critical race theory is a religious war, and you should read my inbox. To be committed to biblical justice while also rejecting political partisanship doesn't put you out of the fight. It instead subjects you to periodic gang tackling from both sides of the field. And again, I would say David French is pretty right there. Like, I, you know, you're going to get attacked by everyone if you try to take some middle way that doesn't fit in a good political box. Um, let me read you the second to last paragraph of David French's article. We live in an age of negative polarization, he writes, when the cardinal characteristic of partisanship is personal animosity. In these circumstances, a Christian community characterized by the fruit of the Spirit should be a burst of cultural light, a counterculture that utterly contradicts the fury of the times. Instead, Christian voices ask that we yield to that fury and that a negative world is now no place for the winsome, missional, 
and gospel-centered approach. It's like he's subtweeting James Wood in that Christian voices ask that we yield to that fury. Now, I don't think James Wood is actually asking that we yield to that fury, but that's how David French is reading his article. He's saying, oh, you're saying we shouldn't be winsome. You're saying anything goes as long as our side wins. And the problem is, that's how David French want. That's the people David French wants to critique. And those people are out there and they're on your Facebook timeline and mine. So let's not pretend that that's not a problem. Right. But David French seems to always, what I felt like he was doing here is he's reading James Wood's article and he's saying, oh, you're saying it's not time to be winsome anymore. That's the problem. And I don't think that's what James Wood is saying. But either way. That's definitely how he interprets it in this article. Either way. That's what David French says. So then a week later, uh, James Wood wrote another piece. This one is in the American Reformer. As he should. Rather than in First Things. And I thought this was the best piece. This is James, I think, reading articles like French's and trying to say, hey, maybe I misstated a few things. Let me tell you what I was trying to get to. And I think James Wood is doing really, really thoughtful work here. (laughs) He starts, last week, First Things published my essay, How I Evolved on Tim Keller. An old friend who is clearly not on Twitter, texted me today asking if there had been much response. <laughs> How could I possibly explain? I can't, and I won't even try. What do you, I mean, this article dominated the, the World Wide Web's for about a week. It was um, obviously not on Twitter because Keller Rod Dreher wrote it. a piece about it. Tim Keller tweeted about it. I mean, it's, it was everywhere. Um, so here is the clarification that James Wood makes in the follow-up article. He said, I'd like to shift a bit away from direct discussion of Keller himself, if I may. (laughs) Which is funny because I'm like, well, you Uh, got yourself in that fight, James. Not sure you may. Just don't say Tim Keller's time has passed. Um, But he says, I'm largely concerned about the way Keller's framework is broadly appropriated by his disciples. Um, So what he's saying is Keller's great. Keller's unique. What a lot of people do is they adopt Keller's framework in a way that James Wood feels is not helpful. And let me read you. I'm going to continue reading quotes. I know I'm reading a lot of quotes here, but I think it's important to set up um, the the place we're going to get to at the end. Um, Here's what James Wood writes. Though I've been accused of saying otherwise, I very much share with Keller the desire to resist political tribalism and uncritical partisanship. Christians should absolutely avoid becoming beholden to any political party. But one of my concerns about the third way model for politics is how it often seems to incline its adherents to be beholden to the perspective of the contemporary status quo, what the kids call the narrative. This was all too evident during the pandemic as countless pastors and Christian leaders, especially those of the Kellerite persuasion, uncritically imbibed and disseminated the messaging from legacy media and public health officials. There's a place for trusting institutions, but this seemed to go too far, especially when reasonable voices of critique were roundly dismissed and castigated as conspiracy theorists, many of whom have been subsequently vindicated. But even worse than this, many of these Christian leaders mediated the messaging that any dissent from the COVID regime was a failure to love one's neighbor, thus binding the consciences of Christians and stoking division in the church. That's interesting because we did a whole podcast on an article during COVID where the guy was basically saying, if you disagree with me on this, you are failing to love your neighbor. And I said, "Mm, that doesn't seem to be the best way to frame that. And James Wood is saying, yeah, that's an example of some of the ways that I think we went wrong in applying this third way model. Um, 
As I argued in my piece, James Wood writes, it seems to me this framework tends to think about politics through the lens, lens of evangelism and thus in an apologetic mode. I have two primary problems with this approach. First, I question our capacity to augur such eventualities. How do we know what the future holds for the public's perception of Christians? I also think this is a category error. Politics is not about minimizing offense in order to maximize openness to the evangelistic message. Politics is rather focused on the pursuit of justice and the just ordering of society. I think much debate is needed over what it means to love one's neighbor through politics. Working to bring about a more just social order is the way we love our neighbors. This will require clarity and conviction. And as our culture has increasingly turned away from and become openly hostile to its Christian foundations, such bold positions will be met with fierce opposition. We will be pressured to assume that loving the sinner means affirming and supporting their sin. True love, which calls evil evil, and limits violations against the dignity of God's image bearers, will often be experienced as harsh and interpreted as unloving. We owe it to our neighbors to risk being misunderstood and despised as we seek their good and the welfare of the most vulnerable. We will need courage. This will include taking sides on certain issues. Now, I think James Wood is on to something here that's very interesting. And here's what I would say as I've reflected on my own world. I have tended to approach politics exactly the way Tim Keller does, which is to say, hey, whether you're left or right, let me convince you you should trust in Jesus and that your leftness and your rightness is part of the problem, right? So when James Wood says Keller tends to approach politics through the lens of evangelism, I think he's exactly right. Um, what Wood is saying is, but is that the way Christians should approach politics? He's saying... There's another way to think about politics. In fact, the way the Christian tradition has thought about politics is that it is the seeking of the common good. It's prudential pursuit of public justice or of justice in society. And what he suggests is, if we take Keller's approach, or what he understands Keller's approach to be, what it, what it keeps us from doing is having conviction about stuff. It keeps us from saying, here's a fight we should have, and I don't care if my neighbors think I'm a bigot or I'm right wing or what. I don't, I don't care what people call me. This is a fight we should pick because this is an issue that matters and that we need to take a stand on. And James Wood is saying, if we're always trying to find the third way, it's tough to find people saying, nope, we're not, we're going to fight on this issue because we think it matters. Which to his point on this, we owe it to our neighbors to risk being misunderstood and despised as we seek their good and the welfare of the most vulnerable. We will need courage. What he's saying there is we need outspoken courage. Yes. Not a quiet courage. Yes. We need like a pound the table kind of courage. Yes. Am am I right there? Yes, exactly. I'm trying to find this section. He has this section here where he basically says, hey, Christians who align themselves more left, they don't have the same problem we do. They say, here's what's just, and I don't care if you don't like it, we should fight for this. And he's saying generally that's the perspective we're going to need to have is just to say, well, sometimes the culture is going to think we're backwards bigoted, intolerant, um, fundamentalist, whatever, whatever label they might want to use. If in our desire to be winsome, we're not willing to be called some of those things and have fights about things, then it might be that we're not actually seeking justice in the world. Because what he's saying is, if it's true that the world is becoming more and more post-Christian, it's more and more true that a Christian conviction about what is the just way to act in society is going to be critiqued by people who think the Christian way is 
upside down and backwards. And he's just saying, if we're always after being winsome, it might prevent us from actually seeking the good in a way that requires us to, to fight. He, he mentions Bonhoeffer, right? And Bonhoeffer is interesting because of the times he lived in, right? He's in, the, he's in a Germany that's run by the Nazis. And what Bonhoeffer, you guys probably know this if you've read the biography, but you know, the, the thing Bonhoeffer did that was most controversial was he participated in a plot to execute Hitler. Um, and as a Christian pastor, so as a, think about this, you're a Christian pastor, you're conspiring to take the life of another human being. Like there's actually commandments about that. The Bonhoeffer saying, given the historical reality of the situation we're in, given what's happening in our country and given what this leader seems to be doing and capable of, I believe it is right before the Lord for us to try to assassinate our leader. Right now, in hindsight, we just say, well, of course it was Hitler. Like it's easy for us living where we yeah, do in history. Be like, sure. Well, yeah, that was a good decision. Somebody should have killed that guy. But if you're in the moment and you're a pastor and you're trying to explain the decision, hey, I think God would be pleased with me trying to assassinate the president of the United States. Um, That'd be a challenging position to be in, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be people who are like, ah, Dusty, you know what? You're out that doesn't <laughs> seem like the loving thing to do. So what James Wood is saying is what's unique about Bonhoeffer is that he was attuned to the concreteness of his circumstances. And he understood what responsible action looked like in the midst of those circumstances. And what he's saying is um, politics, I'm trying to find the quote here in this article, but politics is always the, um, it's never ideal. It's always like you're, you're going to have to go for less than ideal solutions and work with people who you might not love. That's what politics is. It's, the pursuit of the just ordering of society. And Christians are going to need to be willing to make those kind of trade-offs. And and what I think James Wood is aware of in his own life is that in 2016, he was very critical of people who voted for Trump and who were Christians. And in fact, began to judge them for doing that. And he got convicted about his own heart and realize that if these people are Christians, maybe they're just making a different judgment than I am about what's prudent in this moment, and they're free to do that. And if, I, if my position on what is right causes me to look down on them for that choice, maybe there's something wrong with the way that I'm seeing the world and seeing what's right. And so what's interesting is that, I mean, again, James is a great thinker. He's got a PhD in political theology. Um, he's not... Um, a thoughtless person. He's helping us reflect and saying, there's a way that I think we've thought that Keller, at least in his model, there's a way that Tim Keller has taught us to think about politics, which is it's neither left or right. It's the third way. And I think James Wood just wants us to ask, but what if it's not? What if that's the wrong way of thinking? And he's, he's saying that at the risk of being too winsome, maybe we're not actually loving our neighbor. Yes. Here's, here, let me read you a quote. <clears throat> he says, and this is a, this is a you know, interesting thing to say. Some causes are simply more important than others. Some issues are black and white, and some strategies are clearly more in accord with justice. Conveniently positioning yourself between positions might make you feel a sense of intellectual superiority. But this is not the same thing as a biblical vision of showing gentleness and respect. 
The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.